Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Kalervo Gilson from the University of Sydney. Cal has been working on a number of different topics over the past 10 years, all under the broad umbrella of education policy. So we got talking about his early work on space, place and education politics, as well as his current interest in the rollout of artificial intelligence into schools. But to begin with, I asked Cal to summarise the main themes that underpin his interest in education research. Power, space, politics, I think, uh, across everything. Um, from work I did around the relationship between schools and gentrification, uh, around uh, how school choice and race works, uh, the work on data infrastructures as uh, changing ways in which power moves from centres to more dispersed locations, um, and then the AI uh, work, which I know we're going to talk about later. And so theoretically then, power, space and politics, you can go a million different ways with that. Look, I think uh, the, the power part was uh, definitely around the kind of post-Foucault moment in social theory and so um, and, and a move away from zero-sum ideas of power to see more how power can happen in, in local settings, about how the relationships between people, between institutions matter. Mm. And it's certainly that where part. That is the spatial part. Mm. People and places are the kinds of exclusions and inclusions that occur there. I was really interested in your work on place and space mm-hmm. because you've got a PhD in geography? Uh, no, so it's not in geography. Um, it's in education, but I became a geographer. Right. And so uh, political science was my, my BA. I was a school teacher. I had a problem with authority and I went back to, to study. Um, and so my master's of research and PhD, my first master supervisor, W. Dell, pushed me to read uh, Stephen Pyle and Michael Keith's work on politics and place. And then I had uh, my two PhD supervisors, Colin Symes, who's cultural studies in ed, and Bob Fagan, who's a political geographer. Bob Fagan helped me to check that I wasn't reinventing the wheel. Yeah. In trying, well, as you know, when you try to read in other areas, you can think you're doing something very different and someone says, oh, have you read that? And so I fell in love with Doreen Massey's work, mm. um, you know, from... I guess that a lot of the things that I felt she was talking about that were about both the material consequences of how space is organised to a a real theoretical openness and a willingness to find ideas to help you think through the problems that you're looking at rather than just hold um, very rigidly to a set of theories regardless of what it was you were doing. I really liked that. So a kind of geographical imagination. Yeah, I thought I thought she was amazing, and I was fascinated by debates that she was having, particularly with uh, um, David Harvey, mm. where, where I felt like what Massey was helping us to do, which I felt really mattered in education, was to navigate a little bit more through the messiness of what happens in schools and in systems. And, and of course, she helped me to think through the relationship between uh, between people and the places in which they're in. Well, I wanted to talk to you about a couple of specific pieces of work that you've done throughout your career. And the first one was this idea about spatial policy, I mean, the relationship between urban change and education yeah, change. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, what were you trying to find out? What were you trying to address? Initially, I was trying to justify why I was in the east of London doing my PhD <laughs> and I was Australian um, because uh, what, what I was trying to work out was 
why it looked like policy changes that were restructuring how schools work together, so some of them were being closed down, there were demographic reasons that were put forward. I, I was trying to work out what the relationship of the city was happening before. And, you know, the, the policy work that I've been reading was out of the tradition of policy sociology, which is very much focused on questions of power and difference and inequality, and they were clearly very important, particularly in the, the areas that I was looking at, which were um, often poorer parts of the city where um, in both Sydney and in London, schools were being uh, closed down and all other schools were not being closed down. And the reasons why was quite interesting to me. And the reason that I started to think around the connection of the, the spatial was that it looked a lot like what was happening in the schools related to the kind of urban environment that they were in. Mm. Whether that was in, in the UK in Canary Wharf, where you had this hyperversion of renewal that occurred like through the 80s, and but where businesses were in the schools as kind of forms of aspiration, like right next door. And the proximity was fascinating to me because it didn't look a lot like the people, the kids in those schools were going to be going to be the people that were coming to read. It looked a lot like they were going to be cleaning um, and, you know, being service people in the, in, the, in the lower levels of tower blocks. And in Sydney, it was about middle-class gentrification, yeah. you know, transformation of cities. Um, and those kinds of populations have a lot to do with school choice. As we know, middle-class parents have always often been the focal point, uh, white middle-class parents. And I became very, very interested in how cities were affecting schools. But it wasn't until Tim Butler pointed out that actually the more interesting question is what education policy can tell us about everything else that's going on. And you wrote a lot about the relationality of race. One of the things that's very precarious and interesting about school choice and, and cities is about opportunities that are seen to be provided for people of colour. So particularly in, say, black-focused schoolings in, in Toronto, black parents and community can start a school, um, a community school. It's a public school, but it's a community school. The way in which that school is marked out um, very much depends upon both the physical environment in which it's in, but also about the ways in which we understand how race is formed. In Canada, race is often symbolically located in the place itself, mm. Koreatown, you know, Little Italy, and so forth. Very common to multicultural cities everywhere. But at, at the level of black um, parents and communities actually running a school, it became far less pal palatable, right? And the relationality part is that, that there's nothing simple about the ways in which people become racialized and about when that racialization matters. Right? Sometimes being different is perfectly acceptable. Mm. At other times, it's, it's seen as unacceptable. And at other times, when people of colour use the same mechanisms that white middle-class parents use to choose schools, it becomes a problem. Which is where politics come in. Yeah, yeah. Now, just before we, I wanted to talk to you about your second wave of research on AI, but just before we do that, it's really interesting you mentioned policy sociology. I mean, you, you locate yourself or some of your work within this area of education mm. policy, and a lot of people, I guess, that don't work in education policy might mm. think it's incredibly dry and it's just looking at text. I find it a really exciting area of research to work in. I mean, what does education policy do for you? Um, it allows me to talk about values mm. and, and it allows me to talk about why um, schooling is a contested site. I think that the work of Stephen Ball through the from his early work in the 1990s was a real inspiration for me. And then a lot of work around like Jenny Osgers and others, a lot of UK scholars, and then the Australian wave of Fazal Risby and Bob Lingard and Jill Blackmore. And I think that what it, what it did was that it allows you to think about both the micro and the macro politics of schooling at the same time. But what I really liked about it 
was, again, these people really seem to be okay with putting different kinds of theoretical ideas together. Mm. And then they were also, though, like, there's also something about the policy sociology, I'm not sure if it's a tradition, but this is the field that's committed to um, empirical work, to qualitative work particularly, um, and, and committed also to understanding the limitations of that work. I think at times that has become a problem. There's certainly not a lot of policy advisors who go seeking out the micro-political, or if they do, they ignore it. Like Dave Gilborn's work on, on race and, and policy and showing that, in fact, education policy already has by design racist qualities, and he's pointed that out, and the English department chose to ignore it. But I think that the, the policy sociology focus just keeps you coming back to how does what's happening in the lives of students, teachers... How is that related to uh, the changing nature of the state? I think it's become. I think it's a field that's unafraid to claim everything, um, which is sometimes quite attractive. Well, talking about being a f- not afraid to claim everything brings us on to this other topic of big data and AI, which in some ways is completely opposite. And I'm, again, this is a really kind of uh, emerging area of education research, but also an area of immense hype. So, I mean, in your opinion, what are the really important issues that education needs to be paying attention to with regards to artificial intelligence and big data? Well, I think because, as we've talked about, like, I'm located in policy, I think I'm interested in a few things. Like, where, where is policy being made with, with artificial intelligence and big data? Where is it implemented? How is it written? Is it, is it a code? Is it algorithm now? Or is it still a text? I think that changes how we, I think we need to look at what does that mean for trust and transparency in decision-making in education? And equally, to get away from the hype, is that different from other studies of bureaucracies and how decisions mm. have been made, um, you know, the opaqueness of local decision-making? I think that the other part, which which comes from the work of network governance, which in, in a straightforward way is just how are different players now participating in education policy that weren't previously? So... Uh, where it may have previously been the purview of government, now we can have non-government organisations, private companies, philanthropies, who all seem to be contributing to the way in which education's done. In in big data and AI, the technology companies are very important parts of it, not necessarily because they're sitting as advisement, but rather because the tools that they are being used are being shaped by these companies. A lot of a lot of things are off-the-shelf kind of products. I think that we need to be cautious about the idea that once something is in place, what else it can be used for. AI is a, certainly some areas are very good at starting narrow, becoming a product, and then being um, a solution in search of a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in this idea of, as you say, what AI can do. So I mean, can you give us a kind of tangible example of the kinds of AI that you're looking at? One of the ones that I had really not thought about at all until um, uh, going to an edutech conference is about off-the-shelf platforms that are provided by companies that allow a range of, of applications. So, for example, facial recognition, that could allow you to put photos of your school, um, a school event. You'd have uh, your student database with the faces there, and that would allow you to easily produce a, a document for your, for your school publicity right, auto- automatically. Uh, other parts of it are things like sentiment analysis that allow you to analyse text to say whether it's a positive or a negative. Those products are underpinned by uh, various forms of artificial intelligence and they're being used in schools that can be purchased locally by schools. That changes how we understand 
how we should be able to make decisions about how to use AI because it doesn't look like it's a big thing. It mm. actually comes in with things that we use all the time. It's already being used in Microsoft Word, uh, PowerPoint and, and, other, and other kinds of areas. So I think when those come in, is that really going to change what kind of, uh, who in a school is, is an expert about technology or who is in the school is an expert about AI, which seems a bit different from the old previous math teacher becomes computer teacher. It's, it's broadly accessible, but, but it's opaque. We don't, and by that, I mean, we don't, we don't really know how those products were put together. We don't know the limitations we just know that they'll start to be used. And it's, all, it's also very mundane, talking about uh, the micropolitics of the school. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, these are all things that are used in uh, student information systems, um, like your attendance, you know, how often have your teachers shown up. But the interesting part is that AI is almost used as the capacity to do more with information, which is one of the premises, really, of the, of the commercialisation of AI, means that products that started very simply in allowing you to keep attendance can continue to be able to expand their products. And these are products that weren't necessarily developed for education? No, and I think that's the other very interesting part. Like you know, are that business intelligence platforms that were about efficiency and things within shorter timeframes, you know, like, like the release of, a, release of a, your product or something that you're trying to do in a corporation is a completely different temporality to like six years of schooling or 12 years of schooling. But the logics transfer over very yeah. seamlessly. The logics transfer over until they're seen to not be right for a school or a system. Mm. Then you can be seen as a contemporary Luddite, right? You're not taking yeah. care of the, of the tech. An AI denier. Yeah, yeah an AI denier. That's now this nice. sounds <laughs> fascinating research, which would explain why you are an ARC Future Fellow. So congratulations on that first. I mean, these are very, very high prestige, mid-career fellowships. So I just wondered, now you've got it and you're doing it, have you got any reflections on the process? What went right? How did you get it? And also, what's, what tips would you give people that are thinking of doing the same thing? The project, the Future Fellowship, is, is just an extension of a project around data infrastructures and data use in schools and systems that uh, did that was led by Bob Lingard. But the project came out of conversations with other members of that team, Sam Seller, who's at Manchester Metropolitan, and Taylor Webb. And so in some ways, the Future Fellowship parallels other work that we're doing. In some ways, the, it was a very easy application to write because it felt like an extension of the intellectual problems. And, and so it's hard, to, um, it's hard to checklist how to get a Future Fellowship, I think. It's, um, but, but there are definitely some things that are valuable. One is without doubt, it was the right time to have a grant that said artificial intelligence. Yeah. But it's not, really a, it's not really a grant about artificial intelligence. It's a grant about how education policy is changing and about the different kind of power relations that are occurring. And artificial intelligence is one of those things that's in there. So I think that is part of the, that is part of the reasoning. Grasping around for what you think are either politically or field important ideas is not very useful. So there has to be an intellectual substance to it and there has to be a yeah. team of people and, as you say, a kind of, it's a continuation of ideas yeah. rather than a new idea. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also you have to do it. So and it's, you, 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 want to, you want to be invested. And I think the other thing is I realised I don't know so much about what is happening and that's a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. And it brings you into contact with people. And I think that you can, you can build new networks and hopefully support other people's intellectual work by doing this. And I think that's, that's a part that's very good. I mean, that's 
really, really noble. And I wish you a lot of luck with that because, yeah. as you say, it's a huge amount of work. So, I mean, thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk to us, Cal. It's been fascinating to hear about your work and good luck in the future. Yeah, thank you.